This episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays. Join us this Tuesday at 4 p.m. We'll hear from Naomi Murray of Stryker, who will be on the show a little bit later. Her presentation is brought to you by our friends at GE Additive and Foster. Please go to devicetalks.com to register. It's free and you should be there. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Tom Salemi, welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. It is episode 50. We are turning 50. It's not exactly our birthday, perhaps, but it's pretty close. We actually put the first episode out the end of March last year. I don't have the exact date, but uh, it is coming up. So whether we celebrate it two weeks or, or now, let's go with the big round 50. 50 is a great number. I enjoyed turning 50 and uh, this podcast will enjoy it as well, despite some protests that are coming up. But it's a, a great celebration for you. It's a full, full house. We will have on the show today, Naomi Murray of Stryker, who will be giving a presentation on additive manufacturing on our Device Talks Tuesdays program coming up. It's Tuesdays at 4 p.m. And I'm thrilled to have Ashley McAvoy. Ashley is the Executive Vice President, the Worldwide Chairman of Metal Devices at Johnson & Johnson. It's great to have her on the program. Big part of our celebration. Grateful for the time she took. We'll talk about many, many great things, including digital surgery. So uh, I know you'll enjoy that conversation later on in the show. But now let's not delay. Let's get this party started. Let's bring in my co-host, Chris Newmarker, the executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Hello, Chris Newmarker. Good to be here, Tom. Well, you know what today is, Chris. You know what you're turning today, right? What, what's returning today? We turn no. We, what you're turning? We're, we are turning fifty today. This is our fiftieth device talks. We. I'm not turning fifty. I'm not turning fifty. Fifty's great. Fifty's the new forty, Chris. Come on, fifty wasn't so bad. You can ask Sean Hooley's parents, who are roughly <laughs> my age. Fifty's pretty good. You know, yeah. you're right. You know, and medical technology is just getting better and better. I mean, it's it's great, man. It's great. We're I am I am half robot. Really? Actually. Yes, I've been. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Good. Most of yeah. It's a modern miracle. I'll write. A, I'll write a first person for a mass device. It's amazing. So to celebrate our fiftieth episode of the Device Talks Weekly, I sent the Zoom link out to the entire company, invited them all to come on the intro call to celebrate with us. So let's see how many people came to celebrate with us. It's Lisa Itell. Well, we got Lisa. That's a- Lisa's here. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, thanks. She great. brought an onion dip. How nice of her. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> well, that's all we need to have a party. That's great. We can do a little karaoke later on. Sounds we'll great. karaoke at the end. This will be a good time. No, Lisa, actually, you're here for a legitimate purpose uh, to talk about a, a webinar you're putting on later this this uh, this month. Tell our faithful listeners who you are, first of all, and, who you, and what you do with this amazing company. I'm Lisa Itell, executive editor of Design World. In my day-to-day, I primarily focus on anything powered by an electric motor. So I write about motion control and power transmission for Design World. That's my beat. But I'm here today to talk to you about a third installment of our Women in Engineering. We're doing a new thing for 2021, our third webcast on March 31st at 2 p.m. Eastern, I will be serving as the MC for our Women in Engineering webcast. We have three panelists joining Mm -hmm. us and we're going to chat about, I know, it's great. Um, Yeah, we're going to chat about 
what it's like to be an engineer in our industries. We have some amazing panelists. Our first, Anushe Askewan, she's a super accomplished woman. Uh, uh, environmental engineer who also just so happens to be the CEO of a company called Ship and Shore Environmental. And this company makes pollution abatement equipment. So it's a very, very important work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right? Yeah. Especially with uh, the use of electronics just skyrocketing. So mostly her uh, company serves the semiconductor industry. Another panelist we have actually is a returning customer. Her name is Lauren Wickard. And we profiled her actually with your medical design and outsourcing a couple of years ago in the print version of the Women in Engineering series. Oh, awesome. cool. I know. She was a biomedical engineer and did a little bit of a career switch. She's now still in engineering. She's a quality manager at a woman-owned company called Magadia Consulting. Very cool. So yeah, we're going to talk to her about what it's like to work at a women-owned business. Is it different than maybe other places where she's worked? We're also going to talk to her about what it's like to be a mom working at home as an engineer with three little ones in the house, what COVID has done to her day to day. I'm sure Chris, I'm sure Chris and she have a lot of oh, stories man. to swap, right, Chris? <laughs> What's it like to put out a mass device uh, website with uh, three I, mean, I was just doing writing and editing with, with us having some little, little ones around the house, uh, you know, during points in the pandemic, man, being an engineer, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a whole other level. That's real work. And you have a third panelist, right. Lisa? <laughs> I mean, I just get to talk to people and write things for a living. That's, that's, that's right. This is fun. I, Lisa, I tell you, you're an actual engineer. Lisa actually has a has a has some skill and, yes. and, and is able to convey things with a deeper understanding than Chris or I. But uh, and right. you have a third we, panel, she said? That's right. Go that's ahead, right. I admire you guys for distilling it down, which is a talent I lack. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, our third panelist also just unbelievable. Megan Wax, she is a PhD electrical engineer, so not too shabby. Um, she's on the West Coast, and she's working as the VP of engineering at a semiconductor company. It's called Sci5, and this company designs chips for companies looking to leverage something called open source architecture. So this is for automation. She's going to explain what that actually means and her work and her leadership. And we're going to engage Anushe with questions to get her perspectives on leading an entire company, especially because mm -hmm. wow. her industry in particular is very male dominated. At the very end of this, um, I'll, I'll give you the, the link, but it's a very cool interactive webcast. At the end, all attendees, it is free, are encouraged to submit questions. We read the comments aloud. A lot of people share their own insights and their own Experiences. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, very fun. Um, the website is designworldonline.com slash W-I-E. We'll put that in the uh, in the show notes for sure. I mean, it's such an important issue. I mean, even, I mean, before this pandemic, I mean, I know in, in the med tech space, when I go to big conferences, um, especially if they were engineering focused, I mean, there, there were, it was a lot of guys and, you know, we, you know, I mean, it's, it's def I know it's definitely been improving, but there's just a long way to go. Yeah, it's crazy. And I mean, I could rattle off statistics. There's this sort of uh, leaky pipe, they call it. So women who get degrees in engineering, and then they eddy out for whatever reason. So there's some uh, 
reasons and some theories about why that occurs. And we can touch on that March 31st. You guys should join. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so, you know, since like most of the things you write about are electric, my big question, Tom, is next time we have Lisa on, do you think we could use a little bit of the electric slide or what do you think? We could. Can we sure. license that? Yeah, right. no, yeah, we license all the music and yeah. sound effects we use here. There we go. Yeah. All right. We yeah. have not been sued into uh, oblivion just yet, so, but there's still time. Yeah, there's still time. I mean, you know, we could. Lisa, how did you become your, you guys, I was joking earlier, you are actually an engineer, but how did you get into the writing side of things? Yeah. Oh, man. I put my resume on the internet in 2001 when I graduated from uh, engineering from uh, Cleveland State University. You had to be an engineer to do that in 2001. Like, I don't even know, like, what the internet was. I think I was still using AOL at that point. Yeah, right. Yeah. I was floating in space on the internet. Which <laughs> <is> just... <laughs> it was... A proof, proof positive. Don't put anything on the internet that you don't want people to see because I was found by what is uh, no longer, but was uh, Penton Publishing. And I could not believe it. Yeah. I mean, the fact that I work now as a technical writer, you guys know, it is super glamorous. We get to see things that are cutting edge. It's cool stuff. It's very cool. But now you do so much more than writing. You're doing, you have your own podcast, right? What's your podcast? That's correct. It's uh, Technology Tuesdays and the occasional Motion Mondays. <laughs> and <laughs> we love alliteration here at WTW. Device <laughs> <laughs> Talks Tuesdays. <laughs> Copyright. Well, that's cool. Uh, Lisa, you're welcome to stay through uh, New Markers Newsmakers, or if you have actual work to do, we could uh, we could bid you adieu. All right. I'm going to scram out. We have the trends issue going to press. So. Hey, well, fun as always. <laughs> Talk to you around. Thanks, Thanks you guys. Bye. Bye. All right, it's great to hear from Lisa Itell. Once again, that webinar will take place at 2 p.m. on March 31st, Women in Engineering. It'll be a great conversation. I hope folks uh, do register and, uh, and join her there for uh, what's an important talk. And it's one that we, we touch upon frequently here at Device Talks in Medical Design and Outsourcing. And it's one we'll keep talking about in the future. Now we'll talk about the New Markers Newsmakers. That's right, Chris Newmarker. But before we hear the biggest stories of the week, a.k.a. New Markers Newsmakers. We're going to hear from Brandon Hoser, sales manager at Pack World USA. And then we'll have my interview with Naomi Murray. She's the Director of Advanced Operations of Additive Technology at Stryker. And she'll be leading a conversation on Device Talks Tuesdays next week. Let's listen. Last week, we spoke about toss heat sealing technology in Packworld machines. Beyond this technology, there are many other features available. Vacuum sealing is a common application, and our machines have a variety of settings which can help dial in recipes for specific packaging goals. Users can set the machine for vacuuming to a specific level or for a certain amount of time. Various pressures and flow rates are possible along with vacuum purge cycling to maximize oxygen displacement. This versatile system can be used to vacuum tightly around product or set to remove only enough air for reduced packaging size while not damaging fragile contents. Our bag stretcher option pairs well with large bags or vacuuming applications. This feature uses grippers to hold the films at adjustable force, promoting a wrinkle-free sealing zone and reduced operator fatigue. Some applications require trimming films as they're heat sealed. A flying knife or special heat seal band that melts through material can be fitted to accomplish this. Options for user-specific security access and data logging exist. 
This enables compliance to 21 CFR Part 11 in your manufacturing process, which is more and more sought after for integration to quality management systems. Our standard machines are bar sealers, which make straight line heat seals. Packworld does offer custom equipment for creating hermetic seals and contoured shapes. Some examples are sealing ports into bags, tray lids, or more complex shapes like the outline of a hand. Packworld heat sealers are generally used as manual machines with an operator loading and cycling the machine. However, our machines have been integrated to semi-automated and fully automated lines as well. Toss technology within a Packworld machine is scalable. So if a manufacturing process outgrows the speed for manual equipment, it can be integrated into high-speed automated lines. To find out more about Packworld heat sealers and discuss your application, please call us at 610-746-2765 or email info at packworldusa.com. Miami Murray, welcome to the podcast. Hello, nice to be here. It's great to have you, and it'd be great to have you on Device Talks Tuesdays next week. Uh, I want to talk about your discussion in a bit, but I, uh, I want to get a little bit about your background. We always ask people how they get into MedTech, and looking at your LinkedIn profile, it looks like you've been, I think you're the second one I've had on, on my podcast, a, a striker for life kind of person, right? Is I have been, yeah. I went right from grad school into uh, my first position in industry with striker. Excellent. Well, talk a bit about your, your path into medtech, what did you study in is a for a bachelor's grad, and sort of did you know where it was going to take you to where you are right now? It's it's a good question. I'm going to say that when I applied for colleges, I was really interested in kind of the orthopedics oh, industry. I remember writing my my college essay, and I was like, oh, you know, I would think it would be really neat to make hip stems and things like that. So this was a lot. This is a long time ago, right? No kidding. And then, wow. and then I went to college, and I, I did choose a college that had. A biomedical engineering degree. That was one of the things I was looking at. And then in the end, I get to college and I ended up deciding that I was more interested in something called material science and engineering. So I, I studied metallurgy. So I, I was really interested mm-hmm. in metals and kind of the phases that the metals create and the different properties they have with different ways of processing them. And I sort of forgot about the biomedical side of it. I just really got into material science and engineering, which I know sounds a little crazy. (laughs) And when I was finishing college, I I had these moments, you have to kind of decide what you're going to do. Am I going to go get a job? Am I going to keep going to school? Am I going to go teach for a year? What is it I'm going to do? And I just kind of at the time, I was like, I don't feel like I'm done learning from school. I know, I know there's way more learning outside of school, but at the time, I just felt I'm not sure I'm done learning from school. So one of my professors that I was, I was close to and I was working with, he, he suggested graduate school and my dad had been a professor. So graduate school was a common thing for me in, in terms of it didn't make me, didn't surprise me that I would be interested, I guess, in graduate school. So I looked around at different material science and engineering schools and I ended up going to Northwestern University, which is mm-hmm. in Evanston, Illinois, based out of Chicago and I stayed in material science and engineering. And when I got there, we had the opportunity to look around at what kind of positions were open. So what research topics were open? And one of the research topics that was open was about transformation superplasticity of titanium, which is a mouthful, but it basically, I used this property that titanium has to make porous titanium. And that kind of brought me back into the use of metallurgy in the biomedical industry. And, and I, I, didn't, I didn't do anything biomedical at the time, but I got to know titanium and I got to know porous titanium. And when I was finishing it, uh, up in graduate school, I happened to meet, meet or hear about Stryker. It happened to be in the part of the country that I was looking mm-hmm. to be part of. And they needed someone who knew about titanium metallurgy and about porous titanium. It was like a perfect storm. So I, I started there and I, I 
haven't had the need to look elsewhere since. This was faded. It's amazing. So I would have guessed it was you had gone into materials, you really like materials, and then you just happened to discover medtech. But it's interesting that you were sort of interested in medtech first and kind of accidentally found your best way back into medtech. It's a uh, it's really a fascinating path. I didn't realize that until I was at Stryker for about seven or eight years. I kind of then remembered what, I, what that those essays. I can't remember mm-hmm. why, but it came out. I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. I didn't intentionally end up here, but it was fun. That's great. Way, way to go, high school me. So <laughs> t- what was your first job at Stryker? What were you capable of doing back then? And, and let's let's walk through sort of where we are to where we are now. Okay. I started out as a research engineer in the R&D department for what is now Stryker's Joint Replacement Division. Mm-hmm. I went through a couple of different names. So it was, it was based based out of Mawa, New Jersey, where I am still based out of. And I did start working on kind of manufacturing technology to make porous titanium. And so we, we, we were looking at making titanium, porous titanium, which was then trained trained named Tritanium using a different method than additive manufacturing. It's it's if I get all technical, it's mm-hmm. a replication method. So you start out with a porous like a foam, like your cushion, the seat of the cushion that you sit on, and you you know put titanium on top of it. You mm-hmm. remove the foam, the polymer foam by by some thermal treatments. You center the titanium on top of a forging, and you end up with a coating that has porous titanium on it. So it's it's it was very materials oriented. It was very titanium oriented and it fit very porous titanium oriented. So it fit really well. Great description. I, I'm a holder of a, a journalism degree. So I, I was able to follow you. So you described it perfectly for, for every person. So thank you for that. So when did additive manufacturing, now, now here's where I'll reveal my ignorance, additive manufacturing and 3D printing. I like, I tend to like it interchange them and I don't think they're the same thing. What's the difference? I, I think they are kind of inter- interchangeable. I think, I think, yeah, oh, I, 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 <laughs> there, there might be people who hold different opinions out there about that, but I think additive manufacturing tends to be maybe more the manufacturing focused word for it. I've found even geographically mm-hmm. some, some, some areas of the world like to call it 3D printing instead of additive manufacturing. And some seem to want to call it additive manufacturing. It's the same idea, you know, where you're building something up three-dimensionally and, and you're added additive adding to it three-dimensionally instead of, you know, subtractive manufacturing or, or casting where you're, where you're, I guess, pouring molten metal, that kind of thing. Gotcha. So it's a 3D printing would be a subset of, of additive manufacturing. It could be. Other people would say that the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, 3D printing sounds cooler, so I'm going to keep using that one. So when did it become evident to you or, or was it evident from the start that, that the path you were on was to 3D printing or was it, were you always on a, a 3D printing path? Because I'm uncertain as to when sort of 3D printing and orthopedics really became a thing. Okay. So if I, if I think back and I even think about it from Stryker's perspective, right? So Stryker did start looking at additive manufacturing as early as 2001. Now that was some pretty early investigation, and 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 I joined shortly after in in 2002. And so it was probably with it, and it was a it was maybe a different group or slightly different team that was looking on it, looking at it. And I would have become aware of what we were working on in additive manufacturing within say six months of of starting at Stryker. And and it was it was pretty early if you look mm-hmm. at it from an industrialization perspective, right? So there were, there were there were equipment manufacturers, but a lot of the equipment was being sold and put into university labs, and that that would have been where we started with a, a university looking at what could you do with a laser, what could you do, you know, with melting metal. A lot of people were trying to make 
dense metal, you know, start, start out trying that. That's kind of where, where I think a lot, a lot of minds go. And originally, well, if I can melt it selectively, you know, mm-hmm. how can I make sure it, 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 I can manufacture dense metal. And we were very much in the focusing on how could we make porous metal. And so I think there was a little bit of a, at least in, in my, in my memory, there's a little bit of a, of a shift in saying, Hey, could we use this to make porous metal? And definitely, you know, I remember pr- prototypes and little cubes of metal coming across my desk in sometime in, in 2003, mm-hmm. for example, and, and looking at what the mechanical properties of the material coming off the, off the machine was. And, and I, I think in those early days, it just wasn't quite ready. So it wasn't, manuf- it wasn't scalable yet. It was still sort of in these early, can I actually do it? And, and I guess if I extend your question or if I think I understand mm-hmm. where your question was going, you know, it was probably close to you know, 2010 or 2000 and when we, yeah, maybe 2009, 2010, when you kind of say, wait a minute, we believe we could actually make a product here with this technology. It's shown kind of that proof of concept, that feasibility phase. And it was around 2011 when we got that first like production capable machine on stri- within a striker facility and really went after that first product. How cool was that day when you got the machine in, in house? It, it was pretty neat. I have to admit, I was, I was, <laughs> I was, I was on leave. So I was, I had just had oh, my, no. my first child. So. <laughs> and you had to choose no, between sorry, your my first second, child? My second, second child, child, my second child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first one we had gotten our proto- first prototyping equipment about the time I had my first kid. And then when I had the second one is when we had the, the production equipment come in. So <laughs> maybe you don't need to use that in your podcast. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I like those details. So tell us, tell me where you are now at Striker. What do you, what are you doing there? And what is your, what is your additive manufacturing, 3D printing operation look like? What are you capable of doing? So right now I'm, I'm director of, of additive technology, focusing on kind of the, the long-term growth of additive manufacturing within Striker. We have a team that's, that spans across all of our divisions. So all of our different kind of areas that Striker plays in and, and looking at how we can leverage additive manufacturing technology, you know, to really make healthcare better. What is it that your operation, what, what do you 3D print? What do you manufacture? What, what do you do? What, what is made in your, from your area for Striker? So yeah, right now we we have manufacturing of devices. We we manufacture our titanium technology using additive manufacturing. We started in in orthopedics. We had our, our first product was our, our triathlon titanium tibial base plate, which was which was put on the market in, in 2014. And we have a few other a few other that's for for the knee, right? And so we have a few other parts of our, our knee, knee system. We have triathlon, titanium patella components, as well as some titanium cones that might be used in, in a revision space. If I stick with orthopedics or I stick with our joint replacement, we have our Trident 2 titanium shell. Our 3D shell is 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 made using mm-hmm. additive manufacturing. We also have several, several products that are, are made using additive manufacturing in our spine space. So we have some some titanium products in, in our, sorry, titanium products in inner body cages. And then also we, we, we have some products under the trade name of, of Cascadia that came alongside with our K2M integration uh, a few years ago and, and quite quite an extensive line there together through additive manufacturing there as well. We did a couple of years ago too, we we did begin using additive manufacturing on our, our first patient-specific device. So in our cranial maxillofacial hmm. space, we have a, a product line, facial ID, 
patient-specific plating. And we use our, our additive manufacturing technology there to, to make patient-specific plates for orthognatics. And, and that, that's our, our first foray into, into the patient-specific space. We kind of went about it slightly differently than some of the others in, a, in additive manufacturing and in the medical device industry, where we really focused on, could we make serial, we call them serial implants, could we make the same product time and time again, we, we didn't focus on that patient specific side of it. We really wanted to be able to use it to make titanium and to have it out there and wild, widely available for, for our customers. Do you have just one 3D printing plant or do you have multiple across the, the globe? We, we're, we're a global uh, global team. Mm-hmm. We have a global, global technology teams under the brand name Imagine, A-M-A-G-I-N-E, Imagine. My last question about 3D printing, and then I want to get into your conversation. Just what exactly are, are I could see it for the customization, the custom implants, but but more broadly, when you're building just a line of the same product, what are the benefits of doing it through 3D printing? There's there's really a, a ton of benefits from design features that you could add. And so mm-hmm. you'll you'll see in the device talks Tuesday, I have a lot of examples of you know what what we're able to do with additive manufacturing in, in terms of the features that we can provide. You know, for us, the beginning tritanium was a real need. That's we wanted to be able to put tritanium on all sorts of different geometries. Uh, we wanted to be able to leverage, you know, where the where the porous structure where the tritanium needed to be. It allows you to do things like embed say those dense features to give stiffness in places where you might want stiffness in an implant but leave other parts of your implant to be more flexible to have that that porous porous area to grow into you know in the spine case you can have porous with some solid or dense features and you can still then see features in x-rays you know so you can you can actually tailor some of the properties by being clever about where you place different types of you know different gradients of porosity versus dense material so it really was about those features, features and benefits. Where where can we, where can we, yeah, add that tritanium material? And then I, I will say there is a huge benefit just in general when you're doing a, a new product design. You know, you can iterate really fast, and you can iterate with the same manufacturing technology. So if you're prototyping with other other manufacturing technologies, it doesn't always turn out the same when you actually make it mm-hmm. using the other man using the actual manufacturing technology. So kind of the neat thing about additive manufacturing is you can one of the neat things is you can you can iterate and prototype really fast using exactly the same technology you're going to be manufacturing with. So you get a true representation of what that product's going to look like. Great point. And you and you were kind enough to bring up the device talks <laughs> Tuesday sock. So what what do you what will you be telling people about on Tuesday? What what are you presenting? Yeah, I have a I have a little bit of a history of of Striker and and our additive manufacturing, which we talked a little bit about today. And then I, I do go into you know what what types of products we already make. What 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 are some of the reasons we went into it? What are those features that we can add? Uh, to our products, where have we really leveraged the technology to 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 meet our our, our mission of making healthcare better? And then I have some of the, the discussion around some of the other tools that we use, some of the other design tools, like uh, we have Striker Orthopedics Modeling and Analytics Database, we call it SOMA, around designing the implant to bone shapes and density. And then you know marrying that and tying that with our robotic system, that you know that we can we can make implants and we can robotically implant them. It's changing both the way we manufacture and the way we we implant, you know, and really looking at how that affects healthcare. Well, it's going to be a, a great conversation. Well, thank you so much for taking time today to, to share your story. It's great how you find your way into medtech. And I'm really grateful you'll be joining us next week on, on Device Talks Tuesdays. Sure. It should be fun. I look forward to it. 
All right. Well, thanks again, Naomi Murray, for joining us on the podcast. And thanks for leading a terrific conversation that will be held at 4 p.m. this Tuesday. Go to devicetalks.com to register. It's brought to you by our friends at GE Additive and Foster. Chris Newmarker, let's unroll the newsmakers. Chris, Are we ever going to do a sound me, effect, Tom? Are we just done with that? We did get away from that, didn't we? We did get away from that. Do you have a favorite of the ones we've know. done? <laughs> Could it be Godzilla? Could it be the teletype machine? I like, you know, I like Godzilla. Let's do Godzilla. I like There it is. There's your sound effect. All right, man. All right, here we go. So, number four on the list. Whoa, whoa, We've whoa, got, whoa. Uh, you give me five. Now this four stuff. Number five. That's right. We're, <laughs> <laughs> we're number five. Number five on the list. We've got uh, frequency therapeutics. Um, they've they've got a uh, like really cool uh, drug that's delivered in, into the ear, and it's uh, shown a promise to you know restore hearing loss in a in a small study. Um, this is a really interesting company, Tom, because I mean it's it's roots uh, has roots with uh, you know Bob Langer and MIT. And uh, you know Je- Jeff Carp at uh, at Harvard, and uh, it's uh, you know it's 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 uh, you know we've we've actually written about this company a lot over the years, and um, it's 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 uh, you know kind of this uh, neat strategy where they're delivering a drug that's supposed to like activate cells inside your ear and get the uh, inner ear hairs regrowing. So um, you know if. Um, you know, it's great that in a small study it showed promise, and hopefully we'll get more positive studies for this because it, it's a really uh, there, there's some really exciting uh, potential around this uh, this company's uh, drug. I mean, it could you know if you, I, I don't know about you, but I, I've been to enough rock shows in the past. It'd be nice to have something that could uh, regrow some of the, the hairs inside my ear eventually. Absolutely, no, and, it, and I know it's a space that uh, it's it's interesting. We we have seen a lot of uh, efforts by device companies to move into the drug space. We talked about Medtronic doing that a bit renal innovation and uh, this seems to be an area where you've got companies like frequency decibels another one that's backed by third rock ventures and uh mm-hmm. glaxo smith klein where they're kind of moving into the area that was previously hearing aids hearing aids i guess they're devices yeah yeah there absolutely are so yeah it's In- interesting crossover yeah it's um it, it's you know it's i think we're moving into a period where everything is kind of like melding together a lot more um it's it's not strictly like medical devices pharmaceuticals i mean we got stuff being pharmaceuticals being delivered with devices devices that are replacing pharmaceuticals you know it's, it's just um really uh kind of a cool cool period i think we're maybe we'll just be like life sciences tech eventually or whatever you know? yeah I'm actually, it was uh, interesting. I was preparing for the interview with uh, Ashley McAvoy, checking out the Johnson Johnson's analyst meeting from the fall on digital surgery, which was really good. And they talked about basically using the Monarch to, I think it was to deliver a drug directly onto a lung cancer nodule. Wow. So you're actually delivering a drug that way. So is the, there's a lot of crossover as much as we joke about uh, robots and, and machines. It's, it's definitely getting to be even more fun to cover this medtech industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, the robot space is just uh, super exciting. And, and and hopefully, even though they cost money, an equalizer because of the fact that, you know, you can only have so many like highly trained surgeons to do things. But if we can have robots that can kind of like level things out, I mean, that sounds great. I mean, I don't want to, you know, like worry, uh, you know, if, if, if I ever have the misfortune of being in a bad car accident, it's nice to know that 
like whatever hospital I go to, there'll be a certain level of expertise, basically. No, that's a that is a great point, and I think you're right. I think the I know we need to go into number four, but I do think the whole surgical robots are just marketing tools storyline has has sailed. I don't think that's true anymore at all. If it ever were, if it ever was, but I think also the robots are delivering, not only making surgeons better at what they do, but also allowing them to do things they couldn't previously do. So we're not going back. Uh, And if you, again, if you check out Johnson & Johnson's video, that the things that they're able to do and and other robotic and digital surgery companies are able to do, is really impressive. It really demonstrates their value. And the fact that you got J&J and Medtronic weighing in to compete against Intuitive, I mean, there's just going to be more competition, hopefully. And, you know, we'll have a competition that's going to like create even more innovation. So, yeah, it's uh, I'm excited to be writing about this for for coming years. This is going to be very cool. Very cool. So number four on the list um, this is a little bit of bad news. We got... Um, you know, a Medtronic is going to have to face a uh, federal uh, lawsuit in West Virginia over its uh, Synchromed 2 uh, pain pump, its uh, infusion pump. And, uh, you know, there have been a lot of problem, troubles in the past with the Synchromed 2. Um, and, um, you know, Medtronic even in 2019 agreed to create a settlement fund around it worth $35 million. And, um, you know, it just looks like uh, we've got another another you know, this loss, federal loss in West Virginia brought by uh, John David Brumfield is, is going to be uh, moving forward. So, so a little bit of, uh, you know, like, like uh, Medtronic will be uh, engaging in a little bit of a, a federal court case in West Virginia, it looks like. Well, that's an interesting piece of news. Well, let's go on to, uh, to number three. Well, number three on the list, uh, more, uh, more legal news. We've got uh, Elizabeth Holmes. I heard of her. Theranos founder. Yeah, you know, yeah, we've heard of her. We've I, have we talked about her before on here? She might have been on the list once or twice. Yes. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so the trial's being delayed again until uh, late August. Why? You know, in the past, it's been delayed because of the pandemic. But the new reason is she's uh, she's going to have a kid. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, she's going to have a child in July. That's so. a pretty good reason. The um, prosecutor said they were frustrated that they only learned about this in March. No, well. but but you know, his defense, her their her defense was you know saying that uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, the trial was was scheduled to start in July. It's a little hard to start a fraud trial for somebody when they're having a kid at the same time. Okay. So interesting. So they'll be delayed a little more. So and we'll uh, you know we'll see uh, see where this goes. I mean, definitely a lot of attention for the Theranos case. Um, subject of books, documentaries. I think there's even a movie coming out about this. You know, eventually. Well. That- It'll be interesting to, to follow that story. Right, let's go on to uh, to number two, Chris Newmarker. Number two on the list, we've got G Healthcare is uh, la- has launched a uh, handheld ultrasound device, the VScan Air Wireless pocket size ultrasound device. So just like kind of like a very uh, very cool technology. So we'll uh, yeah, this is all kinds of potential around ultrasound. So it's just neat to see something that's just so so mobile that could uh, you know hopefully uh, G Healthcare was talking about how this could you know, increase both access and, fish and efficiency uh, inside outsor- outside of a hospital. So so just, uh, yeah, really, really, really interesting news around ultrasound. Well, uh, number two is the new number one, or I uh, forget about it. What's the number one item on New Marcus Newsmakers, Chris? You know, uh, number one, uh, just uh, you know, some, some more uh, tough news. It looks like uh, the, uh, you know, star... Ankle, which uh, Stryker uh, previously made, um, FDA is now now say warning of like a potential for uh, a fracture of the plastic con- component in all the star ankles. And this was actually a product that a uh, DGO acquired from Stryker uh, in in last November as as part of like some of the divestures Stryker was making before you know before acquiring Right Medical. So um, 
Yeah, it just, uh, I mean, there there already been some problems in the past, uh, you know, including, you know, Stryker, you know, issuing some warnings around, you know, some some plastic fracture problems in 2019. Uh, but, but it looks like FDA is just like coming down at this point, just saying, yeah, there, there's a, you know, a, a problem with fractures in, in all these uh, devices and that, um, you know, basically if somebody's considering getting one of them, they should discuss all the options. So, so just, just kind of, uh, you know, basically looks like another, uh, another, another, you know, we get failures in the industry. So this look, looks like it's, this is big news about, you know, something in the ortho space that, um, you know, has, has appears to be problematic. All right. Well, it's unfortunate news. I remember that, uh, the star ankle had, uh, had been around previously. I remember it was part of the small bone innovations company that uh, really was one of the earlier pioneers in, in uh, extremities. So uh, it's too bad that uh, that they've got the news, but uh, we're moving forward with uh, with other materials. So all right, Chris, yeah. great, uh, great top five is always very informative. Some good news, some bad, but uh, we tell it like it is here. Yeah. At, uh, there the you Break go. Weekly. I mean, this weekend is definitely more like mixed news. That's for sure. So but- all right, well, now it's time for our closing keynote conversation. I couldn't be happier to have Ashley McAvoy, the Executive Vice President and Worldwide Chairman of Medical Devices at J&J on the podcast. I sought her out as part of our big 50th celebration because, number one, I enjoy talking with her. We've, we've talked many times in the past when she was the head of the Vision Group and I worked on a uh, an ophthalmology meeting. But more importantly, J&J has been underrepresented on this podcast and they're doing so many cool things. I'll reference a, a video I watched from their uh, November presentation. At least it was a fall presentation on digital surgery. You should definitely check it out. Lots of great stuff there. Lots going on. Great team for digital surgery. So very happy to have her here. Very happy to talk about J&J's impact on the pandemic. And uh, I was quite surprised to learn that Ashley has not yet received a vaccine. She's uh, She and the management team are, uh, are waiting their turn. So uh, I thought that was uh, very excellent and, and worth pointing out. But before we bring in Ashley, we're going to hear from Mike Alibrand. Mike is the president of PSN Labs. And we're going to talk about how PSN has been helping companies deal with an unforeseen danger brought on by COVID-19. Let's listen. I'm here with PSN Labs President Mike Alibrand. Mike, we talk about COVID revealing cracks in our healthcare system and other larger issues, but PSN is working more with with actual cracks, environmental stress cracking that we're seeing. Tell us a bit about what COVID has revealed in the materials that we're using for medical devices. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. I'd be happy to do that. So I think it's important to understand when we talk about environmental stress cracking in the medical device is to understand that the number one material used in that space is polycarbonate. And among the subject matter experts in the industry, we, we like to coin the phrase polycrack a lot uh, because it's been giving job security for many of us for many years. But polycarbonate has long been one of the most common materials used in the medical space for a variety of reasons. One is extremely heat resistant, so it can survive various sterilization processes like autoclave better than other polymer materials. Uh, Two, it shrinks low. So because of that, it has much tighter tolerances. So if you're designing and developing multi-component medical devices, you'd love a material that doesn't really shrink a whole lot and allows you to achieve those tight tolerances. Three, it's clear and very impact resistant. So if you're dropping this device from a height of three or so feet, your likelihood of surviving that impact is good. However, as I mentioned, polycarbonate's Achilles heel is it has relatively 
poor chemical resistance. So if it's subjected to a variety of chemical cleaners or soaps or greases, things of those natures, it's going to crack. That has become more prevalent in this COVID age because everything is being cleaned that much more. And whether or not the cracks produce are really a function of the base material, the design, and how it's processed. So you can successfully use these materials in a wide array of industries and subject them to chemicals, but you better make sure that those designs are such that your stresses are minimized when you go to make your assembly of your complex medical devices. Uh, PSN is able to support our clients in understanding what the limitation of those designs are, understanding the proper material selection process, and then developing a robust solution uh, to be able to develop this medical device that survives um, the intended application. For more information, go to pcnlabs.com. Well, Ashley McAvoy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's my pleasure. We normally start off the podcast asking about backgrounds, but just before I push start, we were talking COVID, and I want to talk COVID for just a second on a uh, kind of personal level. I've been listening to your your presentations, and you've always been very mindful and appreciative of the healthcare professionals. So I know you're following this on a, on a human level. And I got to ask, I mean, what's it like to have your company's name brought up as one of these springers of, of hope, of, of vaccines? We're going to have our vaccines to the general population it just was announced today, April 19th in Massachusetts. So it just it gives you a lift and it's really a hopeful thing. What's it like to to be part of that story, even though it's not part of your, your business? Well, thanks, Tom, first of all, for having me. And listen, I would say COVID has humbled the world. Yeah. You know? And we are in healthcare is a very humble and very honorable market, as we all know. And I think if anything in COVID, it humbled the world and it put healthcare front and center on everybody's radar screen. And, you know, JJ is the largest healthcare company. So we kind of just do what we know, what we've been trained to do, which is to go serve. And I do give a huge acknowledgement because our healthcare workers have brought unbelievable inspiration, not just treating COVID patients, but also treating non-COVID patients. But I've also just been just unbelievably inspired by our J&Jers who just really, you know, had the patient in the middle and customers front and center. And, we like to say we have this unique opportunity of being a convener of care, and that's J&J on its best day. And the vaccine is one example of breaking down all kinds of barriers and doing the unthinkable and unimaginable timelines, always having always safety front and center, always having patient care front and center, but bringing global leaders together, um, bringing in partners and competitors to help solve a world problem. And, you know, there's 7 billion people on the planet who need to be taken care of. And mm. we all need to do our part. That's great. And, uh, and again, it must be wonderful to hear your company listed amongst the uh, those bringing relief. Well, let's let's switch back to my, my regular mode. I, I'm dying to know what your entry into MedTech was, because you have one of those LinkedIn profiles that start just at your time with J&J. What, what was your first job in MedTech? You know, it was actually in J&J. So I... Oh. You know, I kind of started, you know, I grew up outside of Philadelphia and my father had worked for Campbell Soup Company for 25 years. So I grew up as a Campbell Soup kid. <laughs> Worked 
And he did global leaders. He was in innovation and insights and analytics. And he had people always all around the dinner table from all around the world. And you would go to Mexico and India and food science. So I kind of got very interested into human behavior and why do people do what they do? He actually went to Penn undergrad. And so I would go to homecomings of Penn and I played field hockey and lacrosse there. So I got a little bit of a, you know, the understanding of being on a team and doing your part and finding a way to contribute. And then parlayed that into really the service industry started in advertising in New York City and moved to Europe for a while and got some, you know, hands-on experience with the likes of a Procter and Gamble and a Unilever, got to see an American company and an Anglo-Dutch company and how they do that. Mm-hmm. And then ventured into this little company called J&J 25 years ago, Tom. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there is no one J&J. You know, I, I was always interested in the sciences. For me, J&J, you know, I care about impact and making a difference. And healthcare is just this huge sandbox of being able to help people all around the world. And I love the global nature of the business. I love the science and the technology. I love the crater, the moral compass. It kind of, I tried it on, it fit like a glove. Not many companies let you run five different companies through 25 years and have five kids. So it's a pretty special place. That's fantastic. Well, let's talk a bit about, about J&J and let's switch back a little bit to, to the past year. Internally, when did it become evident? I mean, you have you have plants in, I think, Wuhan, at least in China. So you probably got some early indicators of, of things that were happening. But when did it become apparent to you that, that oh, this is something that is going to really change our lives? Well, you know what? We're in the middle of March right now, you know, January last year. So we've been at this for, you know, more than 14 months. Yeah. You know, I remember vividly that first call in the middle of January. We have a very strong history in China. I'll tell you, we've been there for over 35 years. We have 11,000 colleagues there. We have nine plants in China. So we've been in China for a very long time. And we have a very strong footprint and a very strong reputation there. So they, you know, quite frankly, they were the first on the ground in, in the Wuhan hospital ascertaining what's going on here. So we started our crises management team meetings in January. And then quickly we started ascertaining, you know, this thing is going global fast because then it went to Italy. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, this is the advantage, I think, of healthcare, of convenient of care. I, I remember our, you know, a lot of the doctors in Wuhan started to see patients who had covid and afterwards we're presenting with heart arrhythmias. And so we connected a lot of our electrophysiologists we're the world leader in electrophysiology actually in Milan in Italy. And, and wow. then we started to convene that kind of community of care to understand this. And, and all of a sudden, you know, papers started, but it started to help really change the standard of care for COVID management. And that led to a whole host of other, you know, new ways that we could connect the community of clinicians to understand what's going on with COVID patients and the science and treatment protocols, but equally stand up care for non-COVID patients, uh, particularly in oncology and metabolics and diabetes and, and how to do so in a very safe and responsible, safe and responsible manner. What was the impact on uh, inside internally on your businesses and on your employees? What sort of cuts or changes did you have to make? You know, we, we had a really simple, I mean, first of all, listen, 2020 was an unbelievably historic year, right? From a health and economic, a racial and social injustice point of view, I, I think we, I think everyone was tested and I couldn't be more proud of how everybody kind of rose to the occasion to put the patient and the customer in the middle. We call it like chairs facing outwards and, and really figure out new ways of engaging and offering value. And it started with 
you know, we say number one is crisis management. How are we standing up hospitals from J&J about getting PPE and getting emergency use ventilators and getting all of the right protective gear so that people were in essence protected? How were our sales and clinical reps protected? How did we stand up, you know, education and keep education going? We, we did a partnership with a company called Advances in Surgery. And Tom, it was amazing. We had over, over the year, 6 million healthcare professionals joined this virtual platform mm-hmm. where they learned, you know, all the protocols of COVID-19 and how to, you know, manage from a labor management to protocols to, to clinical care. And then, and then as the year went on, how do you manage non-COVID patients at the same time so that we are, you know, in essence, getting people back into the final and getting them back to the care that they're deserving. And then obviously, you know, patient, patient sentiment, you know, starts to, to weigh in and reassuring patients and doing, a, you know, your health can't wait campaign. So, you know, I really feel like many other colleagues in med tech, you know, the J and Jers kind of went to go in service of solving all the problems during the middle of the pandemic while keeping our customer service. You know, we, we never missed a beat of preparing to say yes to the products and services that our customer needed and our supply chain colleagues, you know, I give a huge shout out to them. Many of them, obviously in our plants 24 seven around the world, and then also conducting innovation. You know, what was remarkable is everybody had to figure out how to continue to do clinical trials and how to continue to progress innovation programs. And, you know, we figured it out using technology to keep meeting those deliverables. So it's, I think we all just came away with just an unbelievable sense of ingenuity and resilience and um, just very couldn't be more more grateful for that. And what were the, the challenges of, of working internally? I imagine you you went remote, a lot of people were not in the offices or did people come continue to go into the office? What was what was the life like at J and J under all of this? Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, like at many, every, everybody, we kind of pivoted fast. You know, we, we've always had still 40 percent, you know, of our workforce either calling on hospitals or in R&D labs or in manufacturing. So it was really about 60% of the workforce that had a pivot to, you know, doing work remotely. And thank goodness for Zoom and BlueJeans and all the different platforms. You know, I, I think I think it's a good thing. I think, well, now there's probably a bit of Zoom fatigue. You know, I think that there will be new normals of, of integrating live conversations and tapping in people from around the world. And I think it really democratizes power. I think it can create a more inclusive environment. I think it's a heck of a lot more efficient than going overseas for one, you know, a one day trip. We're not doing that anymore. But, you know, I, I would say, you know, we, we believe we're not going to be all virtual. We're not going to be all live. We really are going to be living in this kind of hybrid world for, for the new normal. I thought your investor day presentation that you released in whatever, October, November, where you went over your digital surgery platform was very sharp. Actually, total, totally geeked out on it. I enjoyed Thanks. watching it. And yeah, I thought it was really well done. What, we, what do you hope post-COVID will look like in terms of recovery? I saw in that presentation, you talked about, I think it was you, but someone had mentioned that surgeries or procedures that previously took two hours may now be taking four or five hours because the patients are just that much sicker. What do you, what kind of bolus are we looking at as we work through COVID and, and our healthcare system gets back to the regular pace or close enough to the regular pace that it had been on before? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, big picture, you know, the med tech industry is, you know, they're pretty healthy markets. You know, there's unfortunately a lot of unmet need still, still existing. And I think technology is really caught up with a lot of that unmet need. 
And, you know, when I look at the end state markets, you know, I, I think consistent with, with the industry, you know, we're pretty bullish of, of where we're going to be going in the future. And I'm just consistent to say it's not a linear line. It's a bumpy line. You take three steps forward, one step back. And we knew that there would be multiple waves. And depending upon where you are in the world, you're living a very different experience. You know, right now, China is fully back. You know, mm-hmm. J&J grew 7% last year in China. You know, we're going to have a healthy double-digit growth there. You know, Asia was an, a, an very close to being flat last year. So Asia's, Asia's coming back and leading the way for us and leading the way with a lot of different new business models as well. Europe is very sluggish. You know, it's going through a lot of hard times right now, particularly in Italy, particularly in India. And so I think it's going to be a slow dig out throughout the year. I do think they'll come back. There's been a significant amount of healthcare investment from many of governments. And and depending upon where you are, there are certain vaccination efforts that are really picking up nicely. I think the U.S. was slow in the beginning and now picking up. So, you know, we experienced a dip in in December, in January. You'll hear us talk about that in quarter one. So I think everybody's like quarter one would be a little bit more sluggish than we had originally anticipated, Mm -hmm. given some of the research. But given the economics and Quite frankly, the maturation of the hospital systems, understanding how to stand back up non-COVID care, you know, I, I expect that that will come back in Q2, Q3, and Q4. And as we know, Brazil right now is like in a world of hurt. So yeah. to answer your question, it's it's there is no one answer. I think 2021 is going to be very bumpy, but I'm very hopeful for 2022 and beyond. Great. Well, let's... Uh, we'll- continue to steer towards some some positive topics. Let's talk about digital surgery. Once again, the the, the presentation that's available online that you gave in, in the, the fall focused largely on your digital surgery platform, which looks really, really impressive, your, your three different systems. Where are we? I was, I guess I've, I've been following, obviously, robotic surgery for since it came out. I was surprised that it only accounts for anywhere in a single digit to 10% of, of the business. I, I would have thought there was more traction there. So that there really is, is a wide open field. But I'm trying to get a sense as to where digital surgery will fit into Johnson Johnson going forward. If you have a, I used to think it was one of the branches on a tree, the, the robot. But now, as you, with the way you were presenting it, it really seems to be part of the trunk and everything's going to kind of branch out of a, a, a digital surgery system. Is that, is that how you see it? What, what role is digital surgery going to play for J&J going forward? Yeah, Tom, I, I think quite frankly, MedTech has been a little bit of a laggard relative to other industries on sure. how, you know, how digital has really changed how care is delivered really end to end. And I think COVID's really accelerating a lot of that, you know, as it relates specifically to our digital surgery programs, you know, I, I say the following, we were not the first in similar to laparoscopic surgery, we were not first in so huge respect for some of the pioneers, you know, but we we do enjoy market leadership right now. in surgery, And so we're going to, we're going to have a differentiated value proposition doing so in a in a broad-based healthcare J and J fashion, not just like a standalone med tech company. Mm-hmm. And what do I mean by that? You know, I you know, we really kind of go to like the unmet needs and we are very focused on reducing the variation in surgery surgical procedures to improve patient care at a reduced cost. And that could be in orthopedics, that could be in cataract surgery, or that could be in bariatric surgery or, or prostate cancer um, or colorectal surgery. And, 
you know, it, it's it's taken us a while, but I have to tell you, I feel like we have a very, very competitive team of experts working on this. Really, as I mentioned, it's multi-platform, mm-hmm. so it's beyond one. Dr. Fred Mall, who was one of the founders of Intuitive, has joined Johnson & Johnson through the acquisition of ours. It's great to have, you know, a visionary, and this is not his first rodeo. You know, he's been around the block and back. And But you couple him with, quite frankly, we've Dr. Peter Shulman, who just joined from Yale and was a robotic surgeon and, you know, his clinical experience and then some of our world-class engineers and and all of that Ethicon, you know, expertise over a hundred years on instrumentation. And, you know, you kind of put those folks in a room and, and, you know, our, our mission is to really change how procedures are done and create new procedures. Mm -hmm. Now the adoption curve, as you mentioned, is, is low, but in addition to the robot, I think what's equally important, equally, I say, it's really about a system solve. And when you look at a lot of the unmet needs that surgeons have and hospital systems have, you know, you hear common themes. Like if you're a surgeon, how can I learn faster and skill up my, my learning curve faster? Or two, how can I really understand patient anatomy real live time and stay away from critical structures, do no harm, Hippocratic oath. You know, three, how do I make sure that I have the most um, efficient operating room, you know, so I have good continuity and sustainability of business practice. And, you know, that's where we started to kind of convene a whole, a whole market basket, if you will, of, of applications. And you heard about like CSATs is a kind of a crowdsourcing application. Um, we've done over seven and a half million procedures where you, you in essence, if you're a surgeon in the middle of Indiana, you can tap into and say, how did your case rack and stack versus the world's expert? Mm-hmm. And you can invite their critique, if you will. That's about learning. We have a, an app called Visible Patient, which gives you real live time 3D picture of the anatomy. And so these, these complement, if you will, the robotic system and the instrumentation so that that procedure variation is more tight and we get more predictable outcomes. Hmm. It's, it's an interesting time because, as we mentioned, it's, it, Intuitive came out with DaVinci over 20 years ago, Stryker bought Mako six years ago. Now we're now you're, you're you've got your three systems, Velis, Atava, and Monarch that are coming out. Monarch's already out. Atava is going to come out next year. Velis is out, or at least a, a portion of it. We've moved away from this is just a frill that we don't need. It's just a robot. We could do the surgery without it too. This is really a critical part of the procedure. So, w- what happened now? Why? Wh- what allowed J and J to get involved with this now? Yeah, I, I would say, listen, we learned from some of the first folks in and, and, you know, surgery is a slow adoption business. You know, there were a lot of folks on given the, the first generation value proposition wasn't as attractive. And so, you know, I think that we started to listen to broader segments of the community around the world and said, you know, we actually think we can do so and change how care is delivered in, in a meaningful fashion that takes advantage of how we, you know, our world leadership in open surgery, which is 50% of cases still and minimally invasive. And, you know, we see a world, Tom, where it's not just a pure robotic play, that there's going to be a hybrid procedure of minimally invasive laparoscopic offerings combined with robotic offerings. And, you know, we're very fortunate to have the combination of a monarch platform, which has several indications to come, mm-hmm. as well as Otava. And, we actually see the two coming together to solve big things in addition to lung cancer that I've talked about with Monarch, but also kidney cancer and bladder cancer. And, you know, these are really about intercepting the disease earlier to get much better outcomes for patients. 
Yeah, no, and I think the, the Monarch presentation was really exciting about the work with lung cancer and, and, and in pulmonology. It's just, it's an area that desperately needs, needs innovation. I wonder how will this change how surgical devices are sold? Because it almost seems as if once you get, this is almost becoming like an iPhone versus Droid sort of play. If you can get a system that's, that really prefers using a J&J digital surgery procedure because of whatever reason, the interface or the eight arms and Ontava, and they're sort of accustomed to that platform, then you sell the, the surgical supplies into that platform. Is this changing the way that you'll sell devices? Like you really need to plant a flag with that technology platform first, and then the sales of surgical supplies will, will sort of follow? You know, I'd say that that's really under construction. You know, we're really, we very much have like procedural innovation at the forefront and how can we really innovate how procedures are done again, for consistency to reduce the variability in how that procedure is done, improve outcomes at a, at a lower cost. And that's our mission. And so, you know, and, and there's going to be different archetypes of business models around the world. You know, Europe, the UK is different than how, you know, Brazil operates. So, I, and, I, and we're very much a global company. And mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that there's going to be elements of where service is going to play a big piece. I think there's going to be a lot of elements of understanding jointly with with transparency to data to on both fronts, from the hospital system to the surgeon to to the robotic system to make it a smarter procedure as we Mm -hmm. go. I think that that is going to be the new normal in med tech is the use of data and and understanding how we get smarter over time and not having dumb devices, but having smarter devices Mm -hmm. and smart implants. And, you know, we're seeing that a lot on, you know, we're obviously big in the implant business and how do we make those implants smarter with many device, many sensors or, you know, catheters right now, given the sophistication, quite frankly, of technology have gotten much smaller and much smarter, much more flexible, much more affordable that can access very, very distal parts of your body that used to be very inaccessible to many surgeons up until now. So we're encouraged with how these advancements are going to change, you know, quite frankly, patient care. Interesting. No, it's exciting times. I like to focus now on, on innovation a bit. You brought it up on, on in the call. I think it was I think it was stated that you since 2017, J and J had ten million dollars in acquisitions and collaboration. So you're able you you're kind of the New York Yankees. You have the payroll. You can you can buy the talent, but you've you're also I've always been so innovation focused with your many centers across the world. You're 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 really kind of a, a validator for a lot of startups out there to get involved with one of your programs is something that they're very rightly crow about. How do you use that connection with the innovation ecosystem? Do you see it as a feeder system for, for J&J? Do you just want to support innovation generally in med tech and just make sure that new ideas keep rising? How do you, how do you look at innovation from your perspective? Yeah, I, I'd offer two things, Tom. I mean, J&J, you know, J&J MedTech, we were the first to do Johnson & Johnson Development Corps was one of the oldest, you know, equity investors in MedTech. You know, we were one of the pioneering founders of that. And that's been a big source of starting up companies, investing mm-hmm. in companies early on. 
joining their boards, nurturing those, you know, you know, kernels of innovation along their journey. That really is the ecosystem of MedTech and, and remains to be today. A lot of those are going public sooner than what we're used to. Usually, you know, we've got first and human and they're more advanced, but, you know, in today's capital market, you know, debt is cheap and, and you know, it's, it's remarkable, the valuations in MedTech. It's, you know, it's remarkable to say. But I would tell you, we also just look, quite frankly, we're agnostic to where we get it from. And, I think J&J, you heard us about our innovation centers and J-Lab and our Johnson & Johnson Development Corps. And and really what we've had to do over the years is just ensure that our internal innovation colleague are incented to go really seek the absolute best labs in the world. And they're there now. You know, they seamlessly will look at a program and say, if I'm a year away, and there's someone in Israel who can get me there a year faster, I'm going to pause my internal program and go partner with Israel. So I really feel like it's in the, it's in the culture. And, and similarly, we really have an agnostic way to how to go solve a problem. Like lung cancer is an example. It's not just a drug. It's not just a device. It's not just a consumer smoking cessation it, you know, behavior modification program. It really is looking at theology of the disease and figuring out how can we disrupt that disease earlier, really through an end-to-end prevention, early diagnostics and treatment, minimally invasive treatment, locally delivered treatment that's not systemic to just go change outcomes. Mm-hmm. What's your what's your estimation of the current uh, landscape of innovation in MedTech? Are you seeing as many good ideas and new companies coming up and about as we did previously? I, I, listen, I, I do. I think, you know, I, I think I'm encouraged with a lot of the progression in orthopedics, which is typically a slow moving industry, if you mm-hmm. will, of, of their migration to, you know, digital and infection management soon to come and smart implants. And if I think of the world of surgery around making sure that we're getting the right evidence to pre- you know, reduce adverse events. If you look at kind of our energy and endomechanical, everything has differentiated evidence to reduce leaks, reduce bleeding time, reduce infection rates, but also pivoting to, I would say, the future of of combination robotic with endoluminal surgery. You know, electrophysiology, quite frankly, was a pioneer, you know, a, a 25 plus year old company that still grows double digit, you know, they were the first to go in and minimally invasive and ablate lesions on the, on the heart. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of application of that to lung and to other parts, other parts of the anatomy. And then I like to say in, in vision and, you know, cataract surgery was one of the first with the femtosecond laser to actually do robotic surgery. We don't talk a lot about that, but in eye health, you know, the femtosecond later doing the capsulotomy was one of the first to use in essence, a laser beam to do an automatic capsulotomy. So I, I do feel encouraged with how care can get changed using some good old fashioned med tech implants and tools with really changing how the procedure gets done for more predictability. Mm-hmm. You, you nice segue into my next topic, which, which was vision was where we initially met when we used to work in an ophthalmology meeting and you were the head of the vision group. This is, a, you, you, I think you've just made reference of it in this call once you said that you're working on a contact lens that would be a drug delivery system for, for allergy medicine. I don't know if you referenced it again in the rest. I didn't hear if it was referenced later on, but that was that just sounded amazingly cool. What do you see happening in, in the vision space in terms of, of innovation? I'd like to just understand where that business is going a bit because it's actually a sizable part of, of what's going on in your med tech group now. 
You know, I think that there's a lot of unmet need in eye health. You know, you and I talked about this in our ophthalmology Congress chats, you know, but mm. I, you know, there's huge amount of unmet need. People really value their sense of sight. There are, the technology has gotten a heck of a lot better. Treating cataracts is the number one cause of preventable blindness. And we, we kind of play in, along the spectrum from early on with children, and it's not just in Asia, but really slowing down the progression of myopia mm-hmm. so that you don't get a retinal detachment and you don't go blind. We've got an active program on that. We just got FDA breakthrough designation on that to the notion of when, you know, when you're in your teens and you start to get myopia, how do you get introduced to, you know, contact lenses? It's a self-esteem business. You know, beauty is a big entree into that for teens to get to them to be compliant, you know, and to get them to be hygienic. That's why we like daily disposable lens. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and then you just go along the needs spectrum of, you know, dry eye and presbyopia, my goodness, with zoomopia, you know, dry eye is going through the roof. We have, you know, offerings of dry eye to the notion of presbyopia and and cataract. And our colleagues in Janssen are actively working on a program in the back of the eye with retina in, in partnership with our vision colleagues. So, you know, we really look at the patient spectrum cradle to grave and think that there's a lot of entment need. And again, I think J&J can help solve, the, solve these problems, not just as a standalone med tech, but really as a healthcare company. I hadn't heard the term zoomopia before. Is that a is that an actual medical condition now? You'll have to go look at it. It's called <laughs> a lot of dry eye for people. Yes. Oh, wonderful! Great. That's something else we need to to focus on. No pun intended. What? You, but the drug the drug eluding contact lens. I don't know. It, it just reminded me of again when I was more involved with ophthalmology, where Google was working on a glucose sensoring lens. There just seemed to be a lot of promise in that. I'm curious. Uh, how do you, you we, we saw Google work on that and, and that didn't work out so well. Google was involved with with the Verb project, which now you're, is part of your platform. But how does that whole interaction with the tech industry, how has that worked out so far, do you, do you think, for MedTech? Do you think this is, there's, we'll see more of that in the future where the tech companies are coming in and trying to quote, improve the tech that we have? Or are you demonstrating that companies like Johnson & Johnson have this under control and we're going to keep carrying it forward. Well, you know, we, I, I view it very much of like an open collaborative partnership. I don't mm-hmm. think tech alone can do it. And I don't think more traditional healthcare can do it. I think mm-hmm. you know, we have a huge amount of partnerships all around the world. Again, in China with local China tech companies in the U.S. with Microsoft, with Verily, with Cisco, you know, we, we, we have partnerships with many of the tech companies. And, you know, in addition to the product development, they're helping us evolve some of our business models. You know, you mentioned a little bit around in eye health, as an example, you know, we, we've used a lot of some of those partnerships to change, to, to create some really novel, you know, novel therapies. You know, we had the first light adaptive contact lens that, you know, transitions to outside, you know, to a different color using the historic transitions technology. And then we partnered with some tech companies to get a very distinct app that allows people to know, you know, what kind of, what does it need to be inside versus when you're outside? You know, we're, mm-hmm. we just got approval soon to be shared around, you know, our allergy lens and using, you know, some partnerships with tech companies to understand, you know, the state of allergies and how does that relate to eye health and how do, how do you have a, you know, a tool that is available to you to monitor your own personal eye health during allergy season. So I think it's just a beautiful partnership. Mm-hmm. Great. And last question, I'll let you go. I was just wondering, going, uh, looking ahead, we talked earlier about Johnson Johnson's global reach. I wonder if you're putting something in place to sort of 
pr- maybe predict any future pandemics we may have or any future global threats. You're you're just in a great position to sort of be keeping an eye on, on the ball. How, how do we move? How do you move forward in this sort of post-pandemic world at Johnson and Johnson? Yeah, I, I think a couple things. One is healthcare really matters. I think yeah. everyone has been sensitized to that. I think there's a renewed interest in protecting healthcare for patients around the world. I think governments on their prioritization has risen higher up in that, and there's a lot more investment in that. I do think while there's a lot of protectivism going on right now around the world, you know, we're kind of on our best when we do have global collaboration and there is free flow of goods around the world. We have global supply chains. And, you know, we, we are in the business of, you know, infectious diseases. As you know, we have a history of vaccinations from, you know, what we've done on Ebola and Zika and mm-hmm. our work in infectious disease on HIV. So we parlayed that over many, many years. That expertise is really what gave us speed to deliver the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And it's really that internal expertise and external expertise. And, I think that you're going to continue to see, you know, a renewed focus on public health. You know, J&J has been part of that public health agenda for many, many years, whether it be infectious disease or maternal health or mental health. And I think that that is much better appreciated in today's environment. And at the same time, I think patients are going to be much more engaged in their own health and well-being. But then I go to kind of lifestyle and how people are going to live lifestyle and the quality of life and the choices they're going to make about the jobs they're going to do, how they're going to work and where they're going to work. And it really has a, a transformative approach on all the aspects of human life. Excellent. Well, it's great thoughts and uh, some great stuff. I'm looking forward to, to seeing how the digital surgery platforms roll out. And uh, I'm really grateful for the time you took to be on the, the podcast today. Thanks for joining Absolutely. us. Thanks for having me, Tom. Stay safe, get your vaccine, and <laughs> we'll get through this. Thank you, uh, finally. All right, Chris Newmarker. Before we start, uh, karaoke is part of our 50th celebration. Let's give that social media information. Go. You can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a Newmarker. I'm also on Twitter, at Newmarker. We're doing some Clubhouse. We'll be back uh, 11 o'clock Eastern Time. 1130 Eastern Time. I would have showed up early. I'm like, no one's here. I'm alone. No one wants to hang out with me. So great. 1130 Eastern time next Monday. You can, uh, you can hang out with, uh, with me and Tom and give us story devs. You know, tell us what we're doing right. We're cool. Find out what we need to improve on. You know, like it'll be. Uh, it'll yeah, be we fun. had a nice time actually on Monday. That was an interesting yeah. conversation about nice gathering. About uh, you know, we we do obviously talk a lot about the business of tech and all the cool new stuff that's coming in. But one thing we don't really ask about is the affordability and, and how can this technology that's being created help everyone. So uh, that became a big subject, and, and you know that's true. Yeah. I mean, we're, as I as you said during that discussion, there's so many cool things that we write about, but you know, it kind of doesn't. Is it going to really make a difference if people if, if it isn't going to reimburse if people can't afford yeah. it. So it's uh, certainly something yeah. we need to keep, be mindful of going forward. So yes, join us on Clubhouse at 11.30 a.m. on Monday. Chris and I will be there. We'll invite some friends from the medtech industry and uh, we'll just wrap. We'll talk. We'll have some coffee and we'll talk. You can find me on Clubhouse at MedTech yeah. Tom. You can find me on Twitter at MedTech Tom. You can find me on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. And uh, it would be great to connect with you all. Now, uh, if you are 
So that is a wrap of this episode, our 50th episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Let's take this moment to thank you all for uh, for listening. We've had over 60,000 pushes of play. So uh, it's great to be uh, reaching so many people in so many ears. We hear a lot of great comments from folks and uh, really grateful. So keep listening. Keep the nice comments coming. And uh, please do subscribe to this podcast. Don't always get to post it on Mass Device or social media until a couple of days after it comes out. So you can be amongst the hundreds of people who are subscribed and listen to it first thing when it comes out uh, Friday evening and Saturday morning. So it really does help you to subscribe so you can get this sooner. And if you like what you hear, please do share it on social media. Put us up there on LinkedIn. Put us up there on Twitter and uh, connect to Chris and I. We just gave you our... uh, our tags, we'd love to be part of that conversation. 50, 50, 50. <laughs> All right, now Chris and I, before Chris and I begin our uh, our MedTech karaoke session, want to bid you adieu. Thank you for, uh, for listening and tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast waiting for you. Wasting away my days in Margaritaville. <laughs>